I'm gonna watch it at four o'clock while I'm doing yoga. That's what I'm gonna do. How can you watch? How can you watch? How can you watch TV while you're doing yoga? I watch everything while doing yoga. The whole point of yoga is to focus on doing yoga and you know be all. No. Gnome, no, karmic, no. Karmic That's why I don't go to yoga stuff. class. That's why I do yoga at home. You're funny. Oh my gosh. I went to a one yoga class and the lady was like. Now, it's not about winning or losing. And I was like, but this is a sport, so it is. And she was like, no, no, no. This is about setting your intentions. And I was like, my intention is to win yoga. And she was like, but you can't. And I was like, then I'm going to go. You ready, partner? Rock and roll, buckaroo. Hi, this is Mark. And this is Emily. And And we we can can do do this this all day. day. A podcast where we review all the movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We'll go through each film in the MCU chronologically and discuss our overall impressions, things we liked, things we didn't like, and everything in between. We hope you'll tune in and stay with us till the end of the line. Welcome to the show, everybody. Once again, it is Friday night here in the nation's capital. My name is Mark. Greetings from Studio M. And as always with me, joining us from Studio E, Emily. How you doing? Good. We're in shorts in February. Because this it, closet well, is hot and it was it, like fifty five today. It was fifty five today, which compared to what it's been like the last couple of weeks, it's like a heat wave hit us. It was quite nice. It Don't worry, nice. it, it makes, will snow again on Sunday. But at least we got this one really, really nice day in before that happens. But you know, we're not here to talk about weather. We're here to talk about Iron Man three. But before we talk about Iron Man three, we do have a little bit of MCU news. <laughs> Not a whole lot today, but what little we do have is fairly substantive. There's kind of two big pieces of news that broke earlier this week. The first one, Don Cheadle has confirmed that Rhodey will be appearing in The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Don Cheadle broke this news himself in an interview a couple days ago. This is something that we had not known, so this is very new to us and very exciting, very appropriate. We're going to be hearing a lot more about Don Cheadle later in this show, but that's kind of neat. We'll be seeing him at least a little bit in that show coming up on Disney Plus sometime next month. I don't think we've got a start date yet, but it is definitely going to be in March. The other big news, which broke about a week or so ago, Ryan Coogler, director of Black Panther, he and his Proximity Media production company have apparently entered into a five-year TV production deal with Disney, and they plan on making a Disney Plus series set in Wakanda, which is very exciting. So we're essentially going to get a Black Panther Wakanda show. No more information other than what I've just told you, but that is, I think, very exciting. A friend of mine, he wrote something on Facebook the other day. He's hoping that we get kind of this big Game of Thrones like battle for, you know, people are contesting the throne of Wakanda after T'Challa dies or something like that, which would be, I think, kind of a neat idea. I think, I don't actually know if this is news because I didn't read the article. I'm going to go pull it up now. My dad, who does like Marvel, as we've discussed before, sent me an article that Tom Holland did for Spider-Man 3 in sci-fi. And I'm impressed that Tom Holland didn't just absolutely spill everything, as he is known to do. That's news in and of itself. <laughs> Newsflash, Tom Holland does not spill anything on Spider-Man 3. The only thing that he did spill is that he said that Spider-Man 3 is going to be the most ambitious standalone superhero movie ever made. I think every star of their own superhero movie has probably said that at one point or another. He's also quoted as saying, I'm not going to tell you anything about it because I've learned my lesson, but I'm so excited. I'm going to read the screenplay now and I can't wait. I sent it to my good friend Mark Ruffalo, too, who (laughs) I'm sure will swear himself to silence. That's my contribution from my father. That's actually very newsworthy, I think, the fact that Tom Holland kept his mouth shut. And now, 
On to our main event. Tonight we're reviewing Iron Man 3, which opened up on May 3rd, 2013 in the United States. It stars Robert Downey Jr., Gwyneth Paltrow, Don Cheadle, Guy Pearce, Rebecca Hall, Stephanie Stozak, James Badge Dale, John Favreau, and Ben Kingsley. Screenplay by Shane Black and Drew Pierce. The movie was directed by Shane Black, best known for writing the first two Lethal Weapon films, The Monster Squad, The Last Boy Scout with Bruce Willis, a favorite movie of mine, Last Action Hero with Arnold Schwarzenegger, and The Long Kiss Goodnight with Samuel L. Jackson. As an actor, he's best known for his role as Rick Hawkins in Predator, which is one of the greatest Arnold Schwarzenegger movies of all time, one of the greatest action films of all time. And he made his directorial debut in 2005 with Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which happened to star Robert Downey Jr. Iron Man 3, on a budget of $200 million, made $1.215 billion, that's billion with a B, at the box office. It was the second MCU film in a row to cross the billion-dollar threshold on the heels of Avengers. This is the first film in what they call Phase 2 of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's based loosely on Warren Ellis' Extremis storyline in the Iron Man comics from 2005 to 2006. It is the final Iron Man solo film, and it's also the final MCU film released under Marvel Studios' distribution deal with Paramount Pictures. They no longer needed to borrow money from them after two billion-dollar films in a row. In late 2010, after the release of Iron Man 2, John Favreau opted out of directing Iron Man 3, although he would still be an executive producer on the film, and he stars in it as Happy Hogan. Robert Downey Jr. reached out to his Kiss Kiss Bang Bang director, Shane Black, as we mentioned, to write and direct Iron Man 3, which Black insisted be a techno-thriller grounded by confronting more quote-unquote real-world villains in contrast to the sci-fi fantasy nature of the Avengers. So this is where we sort of give overall impressions of the film. If John Favreau wants to not do another Iron Man film in favor of other projects, which was the case with Iron Man 3, you know, that's certainly his prerogative. But I think his absence at the helm of this movie is quite palpable. For all of the faults of Iron Man 2, it still feels like an Iron Man movie to me. There's still a certain heart and charm that make you want to feel for the characters, you know, like Tony and Pepper and Happy and, and maybe Rhodey. Maybe not quite the way it did in the first film, but you know, for me, that feeling is there. There's a lot to like about Iron Man 3. Uh, I like the exploration of Tony's PTSD and his fears about being able to protect the world. There's a very intriguing twist with our villain, the Mandarin. We do get to see a very different type of movie that we've not yet really seen in the MCU up to this point. It's kind of a techno-thriller that's more like a James Bond movie than a superhero movie. And I think we really get to see Tony do a lot more in this movie than his three previous MCU appearances combined. You know, he's doing the superhero thing as Iron Man, but we also see him having to play detective, and we see him forced to work without his tech and having to rely on his wits and his smarts. And we see him as a mentor for the first time. Before Peter Parker, there was Harley Keener. And yet for all of that, it just feels kind of soulless to me. It stimulates me, the film does, but it doesn't really make me feel a whole lot. I guess I was going to sort of just pull this into our rankings because I think a lot of what I have to say will come out in the wash, so to speak, with the rest of the episode. I think I agree on some points. Like, I do agree that the second Iron Man movie felt more like an Iron Man movie than Iron Man 3, but I don't think it feels soulless to me. I think it feels flat in some parts because the only thing in it that has any real development is Tony, of course, because it's the Tony show. 
I don't think that necessarily makes it devoid. I think what is weird, again, of course, we'll talk about this, is the fact that Shane Black wanted it to be more real world. And it's like, that's great that you want that, but that's not what's happening. That's not the trajectory of the rest of the MCU. And that's certainly not the universe that they're in. We can't just go back to real world villains because there are aliens now. It's like for a brief period of time, it's like Marvel had this, okay, what do we do now? kind of moment after the success of Avengers. You've just successfully pulled off this incredible crossover film with all of your heroes who've just saved the world. And it's like, okay, well, we got to do some solo films again for for Tony and, and Thor and Cap. And, you know, what are we going to do with them? It just kind of feels like those first two out the gate were, granted, they're following Avengers, which is an incredible movie. So there was bound to be some sort of a letdown on some level, I think. I mean, I don't know. I think Iron Man 3 is a mediocre film. I think Thor The Dark World is a mediocre film. We'll get into that more in a few weeks. It's like they weren't quite sure what to do in the immediate aftermath of Avengers, or maybe they just needed to buy some time, stretch out their world building. I mean, they obviously had a plan and they know where they're going, but it's like, okay, well, we need to buy some time before we do some really cool stuff in Winter Soldier and before we unleash the Guardians of the Galaxy on everybody. So where would you rank this? Somewhere between 15 and 20. I don't think I'd put it at the bottom three necessarily. I mean, maybe 20. It's definitely no better than number 15 in my book. So I had to do some shuffling. I think I was texting you about this last night that some stuff got moved around after this movie. Originally, I had Iron Man 2 in 11th, and then Captain Marvel was 12th, and I've now switched it. So Captain Marvel is still 12, Iron Man 3 is 13, and Iron Man 2 is 16. Hmm, okay. you got a lot of movies that you don't like as much as Iron Man 3. That's interesting. I mean, I think hmm. stuff will... I think I'll have to close ranks a couple more times and switch things around. I haven't touched my list in a long time, so maybe I need to go do that. Maybe before Winter Soldier will be a good time to re-examine that. Not that that's going anywhere, but it would still be a good sort of demarcation point. So let's go ahead and start on in. So, Iron Man 3 starts off with a flashback, goes back to New Year's Eve 1999, which I remember very well myself, in fact, all the Y2K stuff. In Bern, Switzerland, Tony Stark meets a scientist named Maya Hansen, and on the way up to her room to check out her <coughs> research, they meet a disabled scientist named Aldrich Killian, who's founded a company called Advanced Idea Mechanics, or AIM, which any fan of the Marvel comics will know that AIM is... Uh, very significant. Tony tells him he'll meet him up on the roof in a few minutes to chat, although it's pretty clear to the audience he has absolutely no intention of doing so. Back in Maya's room, she shows Tony her research, which she calls Extremis, regarding altering the part of the human brain that governs the body's repair systems. As she and Tony are about to retreat to the bedroom, we see the limb of one of Maya's ficus plants break, grow back, and then explode. She calls it a glitch in her research. We also see Killian waiting up on the roof as the new year arrives, having been stood up by Tony. So there are uh, a few Easter eggs in the very beginning of the movie. As I mentioned before, AIM, for the fans of the comics, AIM, Advanced Idea Mechanics. It's like a league of super scientist villains in the comics, and they go around wearing these really silly-looking, giant yellow rad suit, clean suit kind of things with big helmets on their heads. The song that they play at the beginning of the movie, Blue by Eiffel 65, is now a classic in our household because of this film, although it's got arguably the stupidest music video ever made to accompany it. When I turned on Iron Man 3 a couple days ago to watch it for this episode. My roommate was sitting on the other side of the living room and she just looked over her laptop at me and was like, you're just listening to that song unprompted? 
I think I think it's a very catchy tune. I would start singing it here if not for the fact that I don't want to get a cease and desist letter from ASCAP or whoever slammed on us for using their music without authorization. Yo, listen up. Here's a story about a guy who lives in the blue world. The other cool cameo is we see Yinsen. You know, almost a decade before he and Tony met in the cave in Afghanistan. When I first saw the movie, I thought, oh, that's really cool, because, you know, we all love Yinsen. Well, and Yinsen mentions it in the cave, too, that they've met before. And he specifically mentions how drunk Tony was, so that's probably why Tony wouldn't be bothered to remember meeting him. It's funny, because I don't think Tony seemed, he didn't seem terribly drunk. I mean, he probably was. But I would have to have been there. I mean, he was clearly being kind of creepy and stuff, macking on Maya in front of everybody. But uh, well, I guess regardless. Drunk and distracted. Drunk and distracted. I think that's a good way to term it. So we cut to the present day. It's Christmas time in the MCU. Tony, who's been up for about 72 hours straight, is experimenting with a system that allows him to summon the various parts of his new Mark 42 Iron Man suit to him by way of components that he has injected into himself. Let's just say the results are very mixed when he goes through his test. I also like the little post-it note outside his lab that says, like, Stark R&D. Because if you remember, after the last movie, Stark Tower is kind of not fully operational. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and even though he's got the Stark Industries office, like there's an office in Southern California, it's like you don't need to put that post-it note there. Like, what are you doing? But I also, in this particular scene, I think you see how rude Tony and Jarvis are to each other. And it, to me, it almost feels like after the Battle of New York, Jarvis underwent an upgrade to reflect Tony's current mood. It's funny because the one thing I note I noticed in this movie, and I guess I didn't really process it until you brought that up, Jarvis does seem much more... What's the word I'm looking for? Casual in this movie. It's almost like the two of them have become kind of close pals and it's not just his, you know, AI manservant. It's like the two of them are buddies. Like later on in the movie after the mansion gets destroyed and Jarvis kind of helps him get out of the Pacific Ocean before he drowns. There's a certain kind of familiarity that the two of them have with each other now that allows Jarvis to just kind of joke with him and be kind of, like you say, rude to him. Because they know each other and they're good pals. It's kind of like the last opportunity that we really get to see that before Jarvis undergoes his transformation in Age of Ultron. I think that's a really good point. It's also noteworthy that this is the latest entry in Shane Black's long list of films that takes place at Christmas time. It's a running theme that goes through a lot of his movies, most notably Lethal Weapon, The Long Kiss Goodnight, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, and The Nice Guys. What's the other Christmas movie that isn't a Christmas movie? Is it Die Hard? Die Hard is a Christmas movie. And I can't believe we're having this. I can't believe. Are you actually initiating that debate in mid-February? I mean, I'll say that I don't actually care about the outcome of the debate. I was just implying that if Die Hard is a Christmas movie and all these other movies are Christmas movies, then Iron Man 3 is a Christmas movie. Yes? I would... I am perfectly fine accepting that Iron Man 3 is a Christmas movie. I know one of you listening out there, (coughs) Devon Sanders, is going to have something to say about this, but given that rubric, I will go on record and say that I believe Iron Man 3 is a Christmas movie. Yes. A string of bombings by a terrorist known only as the Mandarin, who has been hijacking television airwaves regularly to announce those bombings, is baffling intelligence organizations because the bombings leave behind no forensic evidence whatsoever. No device, no bomb casing, nothing. Rhodey, whose war machine armor has now been painted red, white, and blue and rebranded as the Iron Patriot by the U.S. government, meets with Tony at a local bar and grill and tells him what little he does know about these bombings. And this is where we find out that Tony has been suffering from anxiety attacks and post-traumatic stress disorder brought on by the Battle of New York in The Avengers. I actually don't mind the story that this movie is telling, and I think this movie is kind of fun because I do like 
I guess not fun, but I do like some of the personal themes it explores with Tony and PTSD and trauma. And I do think the Mandarin is a cool baddie and also like a fun twist when we get there. But fighting the Mandarin definitely feels like a step down. Like I said before, in the last movie, he literally flew into space and fought an entire alien army to save the island of Manhattan. But Now in this scene, he's begging for scraps to be allowed to fight a garden variety terrorist with a bit more power and insider knowledge than usual. And I think Rhodey is right in this scene when he says it's not superhero business because the only thing that ends up making it superhero business is the extremists problem that we run into the whole movie is really just tony creating his own demons as he says but it kind of feels like we could have done anything else you know like i said earlier you know shane black deliberately wanted this film to not be like the avengers while i agree with that i also agree that it does feel kind of anticlimactic having him fight you know like you said a garden variety terrorist after having saved the world from aliens yes this terrorist is killing people and threatening the president of the United States. But the stakes, you know, I guess comparatively speaking, just seem really low. I can see why you feel the way you do, because it does feel almost like he's, you know, sort of taking a step down. That's kind of the case with all the Iron Man movies, though, when you think about it in terms of, like, who the bad guy is. Because the closest we get to sort of a larger problem that doesn't impact just Tony is the war machines at the end of Iron Man 2. Mm-hmm. become sort of a larger threat to the group as a whole. But Iron Man 1 is really all about him. There's no havoc wreaked upon anybody else in Iron Man 1. And aside from the sort of very specific and targeted well, well, extremist you, bombings, you... there's nothing nothing that's a larger threat. And I mean, like, the president. But, like, the lack of larger threats in the Iron Man movies is, like, it's nice because it's nice to have somewhere to go back to that isn't a constant the world is ending situation. The I don't people know. In, the people in Jensen's village in the first Iron Man movie might disagree with you just a little bit because I mean they're, just, cl- they're clearly threatened. But I but I see your point. I know. I'm, I'm I mean, of... like Happy is clearly threatened. Like there are people who die in these movies because of actions taken around people because of Tony Stark and because of Tony Stark himself. But none of these movies feel like an existential threat. Right. It's not the way all the other movies kind of do. The world is not necessarily going to come to an end if the bad guys win in Iron Man 1, 2, and 3. Pepper meets with a now very able bodied and very well put together Aldrich Killian about a project he's been working on that also just happens to be called Extremis and also happens to involve hacking into the body's operating system to recode DNA. I'll admit it. Modern Killian's nice to look at. He is a. Total jerk, though. Cleaned up Killian's hair is not as long as 1999 Aldrich Killian, but you like that kind of new age mullet look? I mean, I just think it frames his face better. You should watch LA Confidential one of these days and where he has like a very, very short haircut by comparison. Anyway, Pepper declines to be a part of the project, citing its potential to be weaponized. Happy Hogan, now Stark Industries' overzealous head of security, has a bad feeling about Killian and his security guy, Eric Savin, so he tails them. Tony admits to Pepper, with whom his relationship has been strained as of late due to his suit-related distractions, that he's been rattled since the Battle of New York. He can't sleep at night, and so when Pepper goes to bed, Tony heads to the lab and builds stuff. Stuff that, in his mind, will protect Pepper, the one thing that he really loves, from all of the new badness that he now knows exists in the universe i can't let you skip over the giant rabbit oh, you just sort of you didn't write yes, anything about there's it a giant, there's a giant rabbit okay how can i how can i sort of nonchalantly tony gives pepper a giant rabbit for christmas 
just throw that in there like that. No preamble. <laughs> I can't stop thinking about the first gift Tony ever intentionally got Pepper was strawberries, which she's deathly allergic to. And the second gift that we know of, a massive rabbit that won't fit through the front door. Because he wasn't the one who bought Pepper's dress for that dance in the first movie. He gives her the company. That's not a gift. That's a burden. <laughs> it's a gift and a curse. So Happy tails Savin down to the Grauman's Chinese Theater, where Savin is meeting someone. Happy notices the other guy's face starting to glow red. Happy retreats and bumps into Savin, who tosses Happy out of the way very easily, and whose face also starts glowing red. The other guy explodes and Happy is severely injured, left in a coma. At the hospital, and in the presence of the media, Tony very publicly declares war on the Mandarin, who has claimed responsibility for the bombing, and Tony goes so far as to give him the street address of his house, which is probably not a terribly smart idea, but this is Tony we're talking about. Tony and Jarvis analyze the data about the blast that injured Happy. Anyone nearby was vaporized instantly, and no bomb parts were found. Tony becomes interested in a similar blast that took place in Rose Hill, Tennessee, that predated any known Mandarin attacks. He's ready to head there, but is interrupted by Maya Hansen, who is back after 12 years and needs to speak with Tony urgently. One of my big problems with this movie is that I find the plot rather convoluted in parts and difficult to follow. When I was reviewing the movie earlier this week, I had to stop more than I usually do with these movies to make sure I kind of knew what was going on. And it's one of the reasons I think our show notes are so long. It's one of the longest ones because there's just so much detail. What exactly drew Tony to the Tennessee blast? That never seemed clear to me in the movie. Was it because service people were killed in it and they found the exploding dude's dog tags at the theater site? I mean, are dead soldiers the dots that Tony is trying to connect and that that's why he wants to go back to Tennessee and investigate that blast? I always assumed that he thought this might have been where the Mandarin may have started his spree of bombings. You know, like in serial crime shows, there's always an earlier weird but similar murder that predates any of the other ones. Like, the criminal hasn't figured out their signature yet. So I think maybe he was just sort of looking for something that had base similarities. I have to assume that if things didn't pan out in Tennessee and the story didn't go the way it went, he would have tried one of those other spots. Because weren't there like two or three other ones that he could have looked at? They were looking at exothermic reaction hotspots that were like over 3,000 degrees. And I think there were only like two or three of them that got that hot with Rose Hill being one of them. It seems as if what really seemed to draw him was the fact that there were service people present at the Rose Hill blast. Is that what the connection is supposed to be? I mean, you you may be right. It could entirely be what you said, but I kind of wish that that had been spelled out at least a little bit more explicitly. I know we have to show and not tell, but sometimes, you know, the dimmer members of the audience, like myself, need a little help. Well, and maybe it is that, you know, at this time, the Mandarin is politically motivated. So it might make sense that something that killed service members and fits the criteria would be a place to start. That's a good point. I like that. See, I wish you'd been writing the screenplay. (laughs) Well, because I guess it goes from like politically motivated specific attacks to broader cultural attacks like the Chinese theater. Because like I've been down there like that's an icon in L.A. I mean, who knows what their intentions were? We're not reading like Pride and Prejudice here. We're (laughs) watching Iron Man 3. Who knows what the actual intentions of the writers were? But maybe it could have been a little bit of both. 
Maya Hansen is in the middle of encouraging Tony to get out of town, a conclusion which Pepper apparently has reached independently of her when the Mandarin attacks the mansion with helicopter gunships commanded by Savin. Almost instinctively, we see Tony call in his new Mark 42 suit, and he directs it to attach itself to Pepper, thus protecting her. Iron Pepper, as it were escorts Maya out of the house to safety before Tony calls the suit back to himself. Despite the flight systems and weapons being offline, Tony manages to take out two of the three helicopters, but the third one successfully destroys the mansion, which goes sliding into the Pacific Ocean, along with Tony. With Tony half unconscious and on the verge of drowning, Jarvis takes over the armor, gets the flight systems back online, and rockets Tony away from the mansion and towards their previously discussed destination of Rose Hill, Tennessee. Another problem I have with this movie is that the opening act, to me at least, feels really, really long. There is so much exposition in that first 30 minutes. I mean, it took me 30 minutes just to write it all down in these show notes. Thank goodness, though, we get some payoff during the attack on the mansion because I think it's one of the cooler scenes in the movie. In particular, I love how Tony is able to take out those first two helicopters without the flight systems or proper weapons, like missiles and such. First, he uses the repulsors to push a piano into one of the helicopters, which I think is really neat. And second, since he can't launch his missiles, he pulls one out and throws it toward the second helicopter and then uses the repulsors to propel it towards the chopper, thus destroying it. And I just think that's really neat. It was a very clever action sequence. Tony Crash lands in a snowy forest in Rose Hill, Tennessee. He's thousands of miles from Pepper. The suit is damaged. Jarvis is shut down. It's snowing. And Tony has only the incapacitated suit and the clothes on his back. All right. Are you ready for a side quest? I'm always ready for a side quest from you, Emily. What is it? Side quest corner. It's like how we have the news section. This is Emily's side quest corner. Emily, side quest corner. All right, so I have a theory about Rose Hill, because it is a fictional place created for the MCU. But before I lived in D.C., I lived in Tennessee for about seven years. And I don't think this is a widely believed or accepted theory. It's just my own. I think Rose Hill is based off Oak Ridge, Tennessee. And I say this because even though the map Tony brings up in his lab is super wrong, because it shows Rose Hill in West Tennessee, sort of near Arkansas, Rose Hill is supposed to be in Union County which does exist in East Tennessee, and Oak Ridge is just outside of it. Anyway, Oak Ridge, the, the real place, not Rose Hill, was a production site for the Manhattan Project in the 40s to create the atomic bomb. And there's an ongoing joke that if you go too deep into the mountains, you'll get turned around by the military. And there's a, another ongoing joke that if you're out hunting and there's something off about the deer that you shot, like it's got a second head or whatever, you're supposed to turn it in to the military. <laughs> so, oh my God. given, <laughs> listen, this is what you do when you live up in the mountains. You make up stories. All right, I'm, I'm here. I'm listening. So given that Rose Hill has a connection to extremist bombs and is set in a similar place, I think that it's based off of Oak Ridge. My side quest is complete. You may continue, storyteller. Thank you, thank you. That is masterful. Emily with Side Quest Corner, ladies and gentlemen. I just have one question. Is that Oak Ridge, Tennessee, as in the Oak Ridge Boys? Oak Ridge Boys is spelled differently, I thought. Elvira, you know, giddy up, I thought Oak Ridge Boys was spelled different. Is it? I hear Emily typing feverishly away. She's, are you Wikipedia? Oh, no, they're from Oak Ridge. They are. The Oak Ridge Boys are from Oak... Yeah. Uh, I almost sang the song. It's got ASCAP writing me nasty letters. That's kind of funny. Now we know. See, we're here to inform you. We are here for all of your pop culture needs. And all of your weird... Country music references. All of your weird Appalachian gothic horror conspiracy theories. 
Yes, for all your Appalachian Gothic horror conspiracy theory needs, contact Emily. Please do. I love conspiracy theories, and I would love more people to talk about them. Not the bad ones. We're not talking about bad stuff. We're talking about fun stuff, like Yetis one of the, one and Mothmans and Rose Hill being based off Oak Ridge. We're not talking about anything else. I will not entertain it. Tony drags the suit through the snow and into the garage of a nearby house. The garage is very curiously outfitted with a lot of workbenches and electronics equipment, good for tinkering, which is, of course, something Tony very much enjoys doing. The garage that he's broken into belongs to a boy named Harley Keener and his mother. Dad left home about six years earlier, according to Harley. For those of you who are still wondering who that dude standing near the back at Tony's funeral in Endgame was, yes, that is in fact Harley Keener, still being played by a now much older Ty Simpkins. I read an article somewhere, apparently Ty Simpkins signed a three-picture deal with Marvel, so we've just accounted for two of those films. I wonder what that third one is going to be. Does Harley Keener have a role in the comics? Because I feel like I see his name around a lot. And I had honestly actually forgotten about this kid before rewatching the movie for this episode. As far as I know, he is not in the comics. I double checked that and I haven't found any evidence to the contrary. So no, I don't think he's a character in the comics. I think he was invented by Shane Black for this movie. I get the feeling that we're supposed to enjoy the bonding that takes place between Tony and Harley. I don't know. It just kind of seems like a gratuitous opportunity for RDJ to be himself and do the rapid firing of the one-liners. And it just kind of seems forced to me at points. It falls flat at times to me. I like the kid. I like Harley Keener a lot, and I'll talk about that more later on in the show. But the relationship between the two of them, I don't know. It just doesn't work for me as well as I wish it would. I kind of like it, but you know me. I like Tony with kids. We've established that. (laughs) Yeah, but he's no Morgan Stark. Correct. No, I like Morgan a lot. Meanwhile, back in Malibu, Tony is declared missing and presumed dead. Pepper, however, receives a secret message sent to her from Tony through one of his other suits, letting her know that he is still alive. So this is a callback or uh, call forward to Endgame because he does the same thing when him and Nebula are trapped on that dead ship after the end of Infinity War. That's true, but do we know if Pepper ever gets that message? Well, he doesn't get the message, but they played at the funeral. No, they don't play that at the funeral. No, they play right. something else. Yes, because he because he looks like he records that like right before the mission because he talks about yeah. how, yeah, yeah we're going to yeah. try this thing tomorrow and I don't know if it's going to work or not. I don't know if Pepper ever gets the message that he sent from space. But I yes, mean, he does record were, the message. If I were him, I would have deleted it because it's like his moment of weakness and he wouldn't want people to know about it. <laughs> well, that's true, but... Or he know. saves it in some like file labeled spring projects 2010 or something so no one would ever look there (laughs) work stuff work stuff file 28 final version draft two pepper confronts maya who informs her that she believes her boss aldrich killian surprise surprise is working for the mandarin another surprise in a cutaway scene we see the mandarin arrive at his filming slash broadcast studio where he is preparing to record a new message Killian is there also. So that scene with Maya and Pepper, I think was, if it wasn't the only one, it was like one of two chances for us to pass the Bechdel test. And we got to fail that benchmark spectacularly, which like, of course, not that that isn't the case in most of the other MCU movies too, but it sort of proves even more that this is just the Tony show. I was thinking the same thing as I watched that scene again. I I was literally thinking, hmm, failed the Bechdel test here. But yeah, I mean, these movies are all about Tony. Like, what can I, you say? I think in this scene and then the one other scene that Maya and Pepper have together, there's like half a sentence where they're not talking about a man. 
and then it immediately switches back into Killian and Tony. Mm-hmm. So it's a, you get like a, a taste of it, and you're like, oh, maybe, and then it gets then it gets snatched away. away from you. The theme of sins coming back to haunt you just seems to follow Tony around like a lost puppy, doesn't it? In Iron Man 2, it was Howard Stark's sins coming back in the form of Ivan Vanko. In this movie, it's Tony blowing off Aldrich Killian in 1999 coming back to haunt him. And later on, it's Ultron and it's Sokovia and it's Thanos. Tony's got a lot of baggage. Harley helps Tony get some of the supplies he needs to repair the suit and takes him to the site of the blast that he and Jarvis had originally planned on investigating. Harley tells him that a soldier named Chad Davis went crazy, built a bomb, and blew himself up along with five other people there. But the shadows of only five of the victims are visible on the walls at the bomb site. This is an important scene not only because we get more information about this particular bombing in Tennessee, but also because we see Tony have yet another panic episode. This time brought on by Harley's completely innocent, but nonetheless understandably triggering questions about the Battle of New York. If nothing else, this movie really shows us just how traumatized Tony was by the events in Avengers, and we see the consequences of that trauma played out in the rest of Tony's arc in the MCU, particularly in Age of Ultron and Civil War. The Battle of New York and his subsequent reaction to it is the reason that he wants to build his so-called suit of armor around the world that he talks about later on. I think I have a sort of similar feeling later on in the episode, in my show notes anyway. But I will agree with you, like, that's something that I've noticed about the Phase 2 movies in general, is it's sort of dealing with the repercussions of everything that happened in Phase 1. Because you see it in Winter Soldier, you see it in Dark World, you see it in Iron Man 3, and then everything that happens, like all of their behaviors in the early follow-up movies, leads to the repercussions that they see in Age of Ultron, in Civil War, in all these further movies. Mm -hmm. I like that. I like that about these movies, that you're seeing consequences for their actions like you're not seeing the fact that new york has to get rebuilt after the alien attack but you are seeing the personal consequences and i guess sort of the personal responsibility that you have to take when you're a superhero how often does any superhero slash action movie ever talk about that ever talk about the fact that like you're not gonna come out of these things unscathed well you just inadvertently supported your own point you actually do see them deal with the consequences of having to rebuild new york after the Battle of New York in Spider-Man Homecoming. That's the whole reason the Vulture is the way he is. So you're absolutely right. It's That's one of the great things about the MCU. Every, actions have consequences, and it's really neat to see everything build upon itself, and you know, everything that happens gets referenced later on. I mean, in Endgame, Tony's still talking about, I wanted to build a suit of armor around the world. This is why. Tony finds Chad Davis's mom hanging out at a nearby bar and approaches her, clearly expecting someone else. She produces a military file on her son and his associates. She's about to disclose more info to Tony when they're interrupted by Ellen Brandt, an agent claiming to be from the Department of Homeland Security, who is there to arrest Tony. When local law enforcement attempt to intervene, Brandt reveals herself to be one of those freaky extremist folks, and she tries to kill Tony. But he blows her up with dog tags and a microwave oven first. Savin is also there, and he's also hopped up on extremists. Tony subdues him, using a repulsor that he brought with him, and with a little help from Harley. 
you know, my son always shies away from watching Iron Man 3 because he thinks the extremist thing is creepy, the glowing red fire things. And you know what? He's not wrong. I can't help but compare extremists to, like, the failed super soldier serum or failed Hulk radiation or Spider-Man venom or sort of a combination of all of those because that is kind of the idea Mm -hmm. that they're creating this superhuman. But also, Ellen Brandt does look super creepy in that bar fight. I will agree with your son. It kind of feels like someone on the FX team was like, this should be a horror movie instead. It's just got those eyes that just kind of, those of you listening at home can't see this, but you, you, know, you, she's know, just what? Kind of, you know the wild eyes of someone who's completely unhinged. Yeah, she nails that look. But it, yeah, it's creepy. <laughs> it kind of scares the hell out of me. It scares the hell out of my son, and I totally understand why. There's also a part sort of in between this, I guess, bar fight scene that we don't mention in the show notes and I know that this isn't the point of the podcast but I always liked the politics of the scene where the Mandarin is filming him kill the oil executive and it goes back and forth between President Ellis's war room and the Mandarin's studio and he's like President Ellis if you call within the next 30 seconds I won't kill this man but like there's a reason that the government doesn't negotiate with terrorists because that guy was gonna die anyway and all it did like President Ellis calling him, all it did was bolster the Mandarin, and we find out later by extension Killian, into being even more bold in their last lesson. I think one could make an argument that one of the weaknesses of this film is that you don't get to explore kind of the politics of Killian's, spoiler alert, made-up Mandarin, because it's very, very compelling, and it's certainly very topical. I think some people who watch this movie didn't like the fact that, oh, it's just a MacGuffin, and it's really about this crazy guy, Killian, with his tech that he's going to use to create crazy super soldiers and take over the world and the political aspect that he's sort of using to manipulate everybody towards different ends isn't addressed more. Especially since the intention is to do more like real world villains. It's like in 2013, what's more real world than a terrorist? Yeah. Like I liked the twist. I thought the twist was fun when, you know, when we get there, the twist is fun. But what I said earlier about Tony being the only sort of three-dimensional character in this movie like even the president who is presumably like the most important player in all of this because you know he's the one that really takes the hit if this goes wrong whether it's in poll numbers or whether it's his own life right and for them to not touch on that at all because it's tony stark show is like well okay we might as well just be fighting aliens then if none of the politics of this matters i mean i say that as a poli sci minor i like politics if none of it matters then we might as well just be fighting aliens again yeah winter soldier probably does a better job of addressing that and that wasn't even the whole point of that movie oh yes winter soldier does a way better job stay tuned but y'all know that Looking over Davis's file, Tony suspects that he was connected to AIM somehow. With the help of Rhodey, whose Iron Patriot upgrade was performed by AIM, and a television production truck in Chattanooga... Y'all are lucky that I have some self-control, because this episode would just be me talking about how much I love Tennessee, and providing our dear sweet listeners with the best restaurants and hiking destinations in Chattanooga. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Okay, yeah, so so he gets so with the help of Rhodey, a television production truck in Chattanooga, Tony finds archival footage of Ames Extremist Project, in which Maya's research was used to cure the disabilities of wounded soldiers, including Chad Davis, Ellen Brandt, and Eric Savin, as well as Aldrich Killian's own disability. Unfortunately, some of the test subjects had a nasty habit of, you know, blowing up. 
Tony surmises that Killian and AIM sold that technology to the Mandarin, a bomb that leaves no trace. Meanwhile, Killian kidnaps Pepper with the help of Maya, who, we discover, has been working with Killian this whole time. Only instead of trying to kill Tony, as Killian and the Mandarin have been attempting to do, she says she needs him to, quote-unquote, launch product next year. Pepper is now the perfect incentive. Also, meanwhile, Rhodey, in the Iron Patriot armor, gets lured into a trap set by the Mandarin. The reveal about Maya was a bit unexpected, one of two significant reveals in this movie that keep it kind of interesting. With Tony's help, Harley is able to get Jarvis functioning again, sort of. Jarvis is able to determine that the Mandarin's broadcasts are originating in Miami. Unfortunately, the suit is still too badly damaged to be of any help. With encouragement from Harley, Tony goes hogwild at a local hardware store and fashions a bunch of homemade tools and weapons before driving down to Miami and breaking into the Mandarin's compound. I cannot get over Tony's little cat burglar outfit in this scene. (laughs) The knitted work gloves. The black hoodie, the cargo pants. Like I said, we get to see Tony kind of surviving on his wits and getting by without his tech and stuff, which I think is really neat. He encounters the Mandarin, only to find out that he's not really the Mandarin. The man appearing to be the Mandarin in all the broadcasts is actually a washed-up British actor named Trevor Slattery, who was hired by Killian in AIM to play the role of this terrorist called the Mandarin. Unfortunately, before he can get any more information out of Slattery, Tony is clocked cold by Savin, who sneaks up on him. I'll give it to Shane Black. He served up some very convincing sleight of hand with that Mandarin reveal. When I first saw this movie, it was completely and utterly unexpected to me. And I love how we get Ben Kingsley, one of the most celebrated actors of the last 40 years, playing this very funny offbeat role he's easily the most compelling and memorable thing about this whole film at least for me yeah i think the twist was really great it kind of feels more like an early test run of quentin beck in far from home you know this Mm -hmm. is sort of like the analog version of creating an alternate reality because the mandarin isn't real but he is real because he's right there and the bombs aren't real except they are because people are dead like the theme is super similar but i think i might actually like this reveal a little bit more than the reveal in far from home When Tony comes to, he's confronted by Killian and Maya. Killian used Maya's early extremist research to cure his own disability and subsequently those of wounded soldiers. Now he needs Tony to fix extremists' flaws. And as an added incentive to do so, Killian reveals that he has not only captured Pepper, but he's subjected her to extremis as well. Killian kills Maya when she attempts to stop him, and then he uses his extremis abilities, which apparently include things like breathing fire, to force Rhodey out of the Iron Patriot suit. With Tony having talked Harley through how to repair the Iron Man suit, Tony escapes his confinement by summoning pieces of the suit from Tennessee. I also like that little moment before Tony gets all the pieces when he's still trapped about Harley's sister's door, the Explorer watch. Like, I especially (laughs) like that he calls Harley his friend. I think that part was really sweet. And I like also that Tony, of course, fails a little bit before being successful. That's one of the things I always kind of like about Tony, that it's kind of a gag, but, you know, he gets there eventually. He meets up with Rhodey, who managed to escape his confinement, too. Together, they extract information from Slattery that leads them to believe that Killian plans to use the Iron Patriot armor to kill the president aboard Air Force One. What they don't yet know 
is that the vice president is working with Killian. Because when Tony and Rhodey contact him to inform him of the plot to kill the president, he can be seen very nonchalantly ignoring their message once he hangs up the phone. It's also inferred that the vice president may be being paid off in the form of future extremist treatments by Killian because his daughter is very clearly disabled herself. Thinking that it's Rhodey inside the suit, President Ellis invites the Iron Patriot aboard Air Force One. But no, it's Savin inside the suit, and he proceeds to lay siege to the aircraft. Tony flies up there and kills Savin, but not before Savin blows a hole in the side of the plane, causing several passengers to be blown out of the aircraft before it explodes. In one of the most amazing stunt sequences in the entire film, Tony rescues the falling passengers by having them all grab one another and mildly electrifying them so that their grabbing hands remain closed tightly. He's then able to slow the entire group's descent, allowing them to splash down safely in Biscayne Bay off the coast of Miami. Unfortunately, the president is not among that group, having been whisked away from Air Force One inside Iron Patriot, which is now being controlled by Killian. This is, I assume, one of the reasons why the FAA doesn't allow firearms on airplanes. <laughs> I would assume so. It is kind of interesting how those Secret Service guys, how quick they are to just draw their weapons and start shooting. This scene was shot over Oak Island, North Carolina, which is a seaside town in the southeast corner of the state. They actually used members of the Red Bull skydiving team instead of green screen to shoot the air rescue. That's pretty cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's pretty neat. The little factoid that I read about a while ago and then re-dug it up in time for the podcast. Tony and Rhodey trace Killian to a damaged oil tanker berthed in Miami, where he's holding Pepper and planning to execute the president in a live broadcast. Tony and Rhodey, both without suits now, because Tony's Iron Man suit was damaged after the Air Force One rescue, are outnumbered and outmatched by all of Killian's extremist goons. Which is why, before boarding the tanker, Tony ordered Jarvis to enable the so-called house party protocol, summoning every single armor that Tony has been working on. Big melee ensues, with all the different suits fighting all the extremist goons. Tony briefly fights Killian during his attempt to rescue Pepper. He manages to subdue Killian, but in the process he becomes further separated from Pepper. Rhodey manages to rescue the president and regains control of Iron Patriot. Pepper falls, apparently to her death, just as Killian reappears. An enraged Tony hooks up with one of his suits and fights Killian. Just as it appears Killian is going to kill Tony, the damaged Mark 42 arrives. Tony orders it to attach itself to Killian before ordering Jarvis to self-destruct the suit, thus appearing to kill Killian. But it doesn't. Fortunately, Extremis Pepper, having survived her fall, emerges from the wreckage and kills Killian with the same repulsor and missile technique that Tony used on the choppers earlier in the movie. The two of them embrace, and Tony then orders Jarvis to enact the clean slate protocol, thus destroying all of his remaining suits, his distractions, as we talked about earlier in the show. One of the biggest complaints that people seem to have about this movie is this entire set piece. It's often accused of being overblown and gratuitous. I mean, I don't know. It's an Iron Man movie, for crying out loud. You're supposed to have a big action fight sequence at the end. I actually think it's kind of a cool fight with all those armors. I just think that's really well executed. I guess I would agree with that complaint, though, because this fight is so big and so all over the place that I basically forgot what we were there for in the first place. Like when Rhodey found the president, I was like, oh yeah, this guy, we're here for him. 
so many other things were happening. And obviously, Tony had an ulterior motive. He was not there for the president. But that was the overarching theme of this fight is to find the president. And it kind of felt like, I guess, again, that there were so many different aspects of this movie, like the political side and the villain side and the superhero side. And you have to save the president, but you also have to fight this, you know, fired up extremist Killian. There was just so much happening in this scene that it was hard to, like, keep your eye on the prize the first few times i saw the movie i didn't appreciate it as much and it did seem more chaotic for some reason now that i've seen the movie a few times i like the fight more now than i used to but every time people say oh this big fight at the end what it's a marvel movie there's a fight at the end of almost every single one of those movies i don't understand why you complain about it because you should know to expect that no the fight was cool it was just trying to keep track of the objective of the fight that was hard that's true it's not the most well-tracked fight i'll give you that the vice president and Slattery are arrested. Pepper is made extremist free. Tony undergoes a procedure to finally have the shrapnel removed from his heart. Happy wakes up from his coma just in time to watch Downton Abbey. Harley returns from school one day to find his garage completely tricked out with brand new equipment. Tony returns to the wreckage of the mansion and throws the arc reactor that once inhabited his chest into the ocean. In a post credit scene, it is revealed that Tony's framing monologue from the beginning and end of the movie is him having an informal talk therapy session session with Bruce Banner, who has fallen asleep. And who is not a therapist. (laughs) What does he say? I'm not that kind of doctor. (laughs) I'm not that kind of doctor. I don't have that training. That is Iron Man 3. And this is the part of the show where we talk about characters and actors, starting with, of course, Robert Downey Jr. as Tony Stark slash Iron Man. As I alluded to earlier, this is the first time we really see Tony being truly vulnerable. All the snark and the one-liners, they're all still there, and they're not going anywhere. But this is the beginning of his whole, I gotta protect the world and everything close to me arc. And it's nice to see RDJ showing us that side of Tony. I feel like phase two is where we see a lot more of this vulnerability in a lot of the characters. So you see it in Thor, you see it in Tony, and in Steve for sure. And one of the things I remember really well from watching this movie the first time is how impactful I found it seeing Tony have a public panic attack. Like, how often does a superhero slash action movie acknowledge that their hero could be mentally suffering? And I feel like in this movie, too, you can also see the wheels start to turn on what eventually becomes Ultron. First with the automated suits, then with his conversation with Rhodey before the panic attack. He's very concerned with stopping things before they start. And, you know, we'll see how that plays out for him later. (laughs) It's a very pivotal film. We've talked about this before. I mean, this is kind of the Battle of New York was an eye opener for Tony. And Iron Man 3 is the first chance we get to see the repercussions of that, the beginning of his philosophy for the rest of the MCU, and as it turns out, for the rest of his life. I'm trying to protect the world. I want to put a suit of armor around the world, and this is why. We were so used to seeing you know, the cool, calm, collected Tony, Mr. Slick, Mr. Cool, always ready to crack a joke. Even when he was dying of palladium poisoning, he still had a certain veneer to him, a sheen that just kind of made him look unstoppable and now we know that is very much not the case yeah i think possibly for the first time in tony's life he is starting to realize the consequence of his actions and i think that you know he swings pretty far to the other side in response to that 
But when you live sort of sheltered, I guess, as he did, and then you become a superhero that fights aliens on other planets, your reactions are going to be a little skewed. You know, he almost died a couple of times in Iron Man. He almost died a couple of times in Iron Man 2. He almost died in Avengers, but it was, you know, I almost died and all of planet Earth could have gone with me. And that's kind of what separates that from his previous brushes with his mortality and why that was such a pivotal event in his life and why it is now the driving force behind all that he does in the MCU from this moment forward. Gwyneth Paltrow as Pepper Potts. Well, I think Pepper is reduced to the status of object that needs protecting in this movie. Most of her scenes in this movie are either her being subdued or creepily hit upon by Killian, or her in mortal peril and needing to be rescued by Tony, or Tony moping over how he has to protect her. Gwyneth Paltrow plays the part so well, and yet her character's been wasted so much since Iron Man. Her character in the first Iron Man and then in the Avengers is really the best she's at. We don't even really see her that much in the Avengers, but I really like that scene in the tower, and that's pretty much all we get to see of her. But in this movie kind of specifically, you said soulless, and I said flat, but I think a lot of the characters that aren't Tony are really flat, especially her being a female character that it's flat on top of just poor writing. Mm-hmm. You know, the expectation that this is a woman's role in a superhero movie kind of thing. It's the Tony show, but it's also the RDJ show. An irony is, you know, as we get further into the MCU, we see a lot more depth and a lot more involvement from the various women characters, whether it be Natasha Romanoff or Captain Marvel or Okoye or Shuri or Hope Van Dyne or Valkyrie, Jane Foster even, you name it. Yet the woman who kind of, sort of the first woman of the MCU, Pepper Potts, just kind of gets sidelined for the rest of the MCU. She doesn't have very much to do in Infinity War. She doesn't have a whole lot to do in Endgame. And that's just, I don't know, that's just kind of sad. Don Cheadle as Rhodey. I think Don Cheadle seems much more relaxed in this movie than he was in Iron Man 2. He still doesn't feel completely at ease with the role. I think he comes around much more in Age of Ultron and especially Civil War. But this, I think, was a vast improvement over Iron Man 2 for him. And I think he's getting more into the groove in this movie. Like we said before, I do think... Most of the characters besides Tony are pretty flat, but I think he's one of the few characters, I would say it's him and Harley Keener that really get to have more than one dimension. You know, they're not just characters written on a page. I think the two of them especially. I do like him probably the best in Civil War. I think that's where he gets to be the most his own character, but since he has to play off being like the sidekick... I think he's pretty good on this one. Guy Pierce as Aldrich Killian. I like Guy Pierce a lot, but I just don't think he brings anything particularly unique to this role. I think you could have cast any of a dozen other dudes for this role and gotten similar and who knows, maybe even better results. I mean, I like that he cut his hair eventually. <laughs> I think he looks better with the short hair. I know it's still considered long, but it's shorter than it was. However, his whole guy with the dragon tattoos shirtless shtick in the fight, <laughs> I no. That was dumb. That was a little gratuitous. I agree. That was too much. Didn't like it. Thought it was way too extra. Rebecca Hall as Maya Hansen. She looks like Liv Tyler, and she reminds me of Betty Ross. And if you have listened to that episode, the Incredible Hulk episode, neither of those are great things. <laughs> not exactly high praise coming from Emily. I really got nothing to say about her. I think the character serves very little purpose other than that she invented Extremis and she slept with Tony. That's pretty much it. Rebecca Hall isn't particularly impressive in the role. Not that she had much to work with in the first place. So, you know, that's not her fault, but just I don't really have a whole lot to say about her. Ty Simpkins as Harley Keener. 
I think Harley Keener, and then of course, by extension, Ty Simpkins, is great in this movie. I think with kids in movies and TV shows, there's always like a sweet spot in age where they've started to realize what sarcasm is, but they're still all innocent and cute. So they can kind of play up and play down in different age roles. But one of my favorite scenes in this movie was when Tony was having his second panic attack and he was driving down to Miami. And at first, Harley was like, what did I even do? I didn't even mention New York. Like, that was the thing that you told me was the trigger, and now it's not the trigger anymore. Like, what do I do? But then once he realized that Tony still needed help either way, he comes up with the only thing he can think of to help, which is, why don't you build something? Which is Mm -hmm. probably something that's happened in Harley's own life. Like, he's just pulling from his limited... I don't know, 10, 11, however old he's supposed to be, life experience of, oh, well, whenever I'm freaked out, I just build stuff and just sort of passes that along. And I think he's 100 times more useful than any other adult that has interacted with Tony while he's been spiraling. I think that's very true. And Tony makes that kind of offhand comment about, yeah, you're not the only one whose father left him. I don't want to say they're kindred spirits, but they both have certain shared life experiences of having their father abandon them in certain ways. Tony's dad abandoned him emotionally, if not physically. Harley's dad left him and his mom. And it wouldn't surprise me if the tinkering that he does is his way of coping with that trauma. I can only imagine having your father just up and ditch you. It's got to be horrible. And that's got to be very traumatizing. Well, and you know, They're connected. (laughs) I love that part. That's so mean. But having been a person who's hung around, like, Harley must be, like, third, fourth, maybe fifth grade max. And it's the first time that you can be mean to them, and it's okay. They're not going to, like, burst into tears. Because even after that, Harley's like, I thought it was worth a try. Like, you know that he doesn't take it personally. I've always loved that about that particular character. I don't usually have much to say about child actors and characters, but there is something refreshing about Ty Simpkins as Harley Keener, because he's got all the innocence and the youthful exuberance of, say, Peter Parker, but because he's not a teenager yet, you don't get all the annoying awkwardness or angst. I'm not a big fan of teen angst, in case you haven't noticed. I'm sure if you put me on a psychiatrist's couch long enough, you could figure out why that's the case, but for now, let's just say it's not my thing. John Favreau as Happy Hogan. I love John Favreau. Even when he spends most of the movie in a coma, he makes the most of his screen time. Perhaps it's not a coincidence that he seems, at least to me, much more relaxed in his acting when he doesn't have to worry about being behind the camera. I see that as the case in this film. I think he's like that in Spider-Man Far From Home. He's like that in Spider-Man Homecoming too, to a lesser extent. I've always loved how Happy compliments, and that's compliments with an E in the middle, not an I, compliments Tony. You've got Tony as an eccentric, self-described, billionaire, playboy, philanthropist, while Happy is more of a neurotic, overzealous, blue-collar kind of guy. Normally, this isn't a thing that I would say, but I like how in every movie, happy is just happy. He is this sort of immovable object in all of the movies. The cast or the scenery or the baddie might change, but he's still always going to be that guy who just wants to see your badge. (laughs) But you always have to have at least one constant presence when everything around you is changing, and rightfully so. You want your characters to grow and develop, but something has to stay the same, and I agree with you. I think happy serves that purpose quite well. Ben Kingsley as Trevor Slattery, quote unquote, the Mandarin. <laughs> oh, ole, 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 ole. <laughs> Every time he does that, I just crack up. That's because I know a lot of soccer fans. The only thing I don't like about Ben Kingsley in this role is that I would love to have seen a movie in which he really was the Mandarin. Him doing, you know, all those, that 
weird accent that he talks in. That said, the big reveal about him was the most unexpected and welcome thing when I first saw this movie. It was also great to see one of Marvel's veteran actors playing something really off the wall and goofy, and by extension, tremendously entertaining. I really liked the Mandarin. I think I liked the baddie more so than when he was revealed to be just some goofy discount actor. And I know, again, he's just the face of the bad guy, like how Whiplash was the face of Justin Hammer. But it is, like, such an adventure. Because I guess what always got me is that I was trying to imagine how they managed to prop up... Like, he's a mess. He's a disaster. Like, when yeah. Tony and Rhodey meet him. Because I would say that he's a discount actor, but, like, that probably takes some acting skills to be able to go from drunk, playboy kind of guy on the couch watching soccer to the mandarin like mm -hmm. those videos were kind of scary they're very scary i can imagine having just survived an alien attack like you might be a little bit concerned i imagine that on a new yorker's list of concerns terrorism is probably like 1722nd on the list and like another alien attack is like number two <laughs> in the mcu yeah yeah but i imagine that other people are like whoa all of the production around him was just that good that this weirdo, just odd man could be the Mandarin. Despite all the distractions and the women and the God knows what sort of illicit substances were being consumed by Trevor Slattery, you know, he was able to fool everybody by making the world think he was this world-class terrorist. What does Killian say? He's like a, he's a stage actor. He's very good. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't put it past Shane Black to be sort of putting in a commentary about actors and Hollywood and so forth. I mean, he was only an actor for a very brief period of time himself. So I'm wondering if some of this commentary or what I think is commentary was informed by that. And miscellaneous notes about the film. I do want to talk briefly, because I always talk about the music in the movie. Brian Tyler is a relatively young composer. And when I say relatively young, I mean compared to the likes of, say, John Williams. He's young. He's less than a year older than me. You know, he's been making music for film and TV and movies since the late 90s. But he didn't start to get really noticed until the mid to late aughts with scores for films in lots of big franchises like Alien vs. Predator and The Expendables. And, of course, the franchise for which I love his work the most, the Fast and Furious movies, many of which he has scored himself. He signed on to score several films for Marvel, as I understand it, but only ended up doing three. And we'll talk more about that when we get to Age of Ultron, because that was the last one that he did. Iron Man 3 was the first of those three. And I think it's by far the best of his three scores because for the first time, finally, Iron Man gets a memorable theme to use. It's very percussive and it's got a lot of the metal clanking noises in it. And when I think of Iron Man, if I have to think of music, that's what comes to mind. Unfortunately, it's also the last time we ever hear that theme, but at least we got to hear it at all. So I'm happy about that. The end credits scene, that weird sort of, you know, 70s swinging uh, Hawaii Five-O rendition of the theme that plays in the end credits. I love that. I think there's a certain irony there because Brian Tyler composed much of the music for the revived Hawaii Five-0 TV series that just ended its 10-year run on CBS like last April or May. And that included a reboot that he arranged of the classic Hawaii Five-0 theme song. And that's exactly what the end credits music in Iron Man 3 sounds like. I gotta say, in this movie, I think I only noticed the music at the very beginning when they played Blue. And then at the very end, 
when they played that song. I think I must have just been so distracted by the plot and everything that I had to follow to keep track of what was going on that the music just took a backseat for me. I get all the Marvel film scores after the movies come out and I listen to them for a while and that one stuck with me for a while because it's like, wow, finally Tony's got a real theme. You will not be surprised to know that the only MCU score I own is Winter Soldier. I knew that. Well, I knew you owned it. I didn't... So we will talk about music more when we get to that one. I'm a little surprised you don't have the other two. All right. That is our review of Iron Man 3. We hope you enjoyed it. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. We will be back in about three weeks for our review of Thor The Dark World, which will be kind of an interesting review for both Emily and me. It's, at least as of right now, not one of our most favorite MCU movies. We'll see if a rewatch in a couple weeks changes that. I think since we got through Incredible Hulk, we can get through The Dark World. I think we can do that, too. There are things about that movie that I think are quite good. Every MCU movie has things about it that are, I think, really fantastic. Even, like, my least favorite ones have moments that are wonderful. But we will save that for another podcast. Until then, have a good night, everybody. See you later. I did it. I didn't call him the Mandalorian. Neither of us did. Yay. Hey. Yay. Yay us. Yay, team.